I had an, a rookie mistake in the last service. I forgot to turn on my mic. And so for the first two or three minutes, unbeknownst to me, there were several people waving in the back trying to say, turn on your mic, we can't hear you. I could hear me, so I don't know what the problem was. Um, like Alex said, Kevin and I um, have been here at this church for about 14 or 15 years. And um, we met about 30 years ago in Arizona, and we've lived in several states, um, Illinois, Colorado, Nebraska. This is our second time in Nebraska. But previous to that, I grew up in western Illinois, in a town where both of my parents had grown up and still lived and worked in the same town. Uh, My mom worked at the grocery store, and my dad was in law enforcement. So they knew a lot of people around town. So it was inevitable when I was, whether I was with them or not, if I was checking out at the grocery store or um, starting a new year in high school and I would have the same teachers that my parents had, people were always saying, you look just like your dad. And they would know who my dad was. Um, But I want you to know that I did not always consider this a compliment. And let me tell you why. Um, My dad was a young parent However, he went bald very early. So by the time people would say this to me, my dad was slick bald on top. And this was the 70s and the 80s. And and so, like I said, my dad was in law enforcement. So he had that great, epic, thick, black mustache. And for party tricks, my dad was big with party tricks. He would eat dog treats and, you know, anything for a laugh. He loved to push out his dentures to make people laugh and to intimidate small children. (laughs) No 13-year-old girl wants to be told she looks just like her dad. (laughs) However, there were other things about my dad and other attributes that I discovered as I grew that I really wanted to be like. I never once heard my dad use a curse word. He was incredibly honest and full of integrity. He had a great character. If he said he would do something, he would do it. As I got much older and I started to recognize the dynamics in his own family, I saw my dad treat with profound respect and deference his own father who only ever treated him with contempt. Those were the attributes that I've tried to emulate in my life. And those are the places that I would love to hear people say to me, you look just like your dad. I can see your dad in you. Well, this series on the Beatitudes is about family traits. God's family traits. The Beatitudes is a list of attitudes that are meant to move us to action and ultimately become personal attributes of God's children. These personal attributes help us to be identified as belonging to God's family. So we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and the ushers are available if you do not have your Bible today. They would love to let you have one of these from the church if you want to just raise your hand. If you need a Bible, if you just don't have your Bible with you, you can These are yours to keep. If you just want to use it today and put it back on the shelf when you leave, that is fine as well. Just raise up your hand and then 
Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to begin, and then we'll park on Matthew 5, verse 9, and that's where we'll spend our time this morning. But before we get there, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together as a church family. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds for all that you have for us. We pray, Lord, that um, we pray with confidence that your word will not return empty or void. And we know that as it goes out, it will accomplish your purposes in the life, the lives of your people. And so we will give all glory, honor, and praise to you only. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we get into the passage, go ahead and keep your Bibles open. We're going to just review a little bit where we have come through this study of the Beatitudes. The one thing that I have learned along the way in this series is that the Beatitudes are not possible, achievable, or possessible apart from Jesus Christ. Because these are attributes of God's family, it is imperative that we be a part of God's family. So we don't pursue these attributes as a means of salvation. This is not a ladder to salvation to get to heaven. They're... um, These are the evidence of a salvation that has already taken place. So I like to think of the Beatitudes as aftershocks of a great earthquake. The aftershocks are the evidence that the earthquake has happened. So if we consider ourselves part of God's family, these are the family traits our Heavenly Father desires for us and Christ, His Son, has already modeled for us. So we'll go way back to the beginning. The first beatitude that we talked about was blessed are the poor in spirit. And if you remember, Andrew told us that this does not mean spiritually, uh, this does not mean financially poor. This attitude tells us that we are in a blessed state when we are spiritually bankrupt. And that word bankrupt has a very strong meaning to us. Because bankruptcy, financially, means that we've come to the end. We have no more hope. We're at the end. There's nothing else we can do. We are without hope and without help. And so we are financially bankrupt. And that's what spiritually bankrupt means as well. It means that we are at the end of ourselves. We recognize there's nothing that we can do, no way to achieve, no way to possess or borrow salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And so we recognize that we need God. Then we went into, blessed are those who mourn. And this mourning was explained to us as being more than just the grief and sorrow that we feel when we lose something or someone of great value, someone who is very special to us. This is the all-consuming awareness of our own sinfulness. We are blessed when we mourn our sin and the distance that it puts between us and God. You see, God doesn't move away from us. We move away from God because of our sin. This is not meant to keep us in some perpetual pity party. That's not what it means. When we do this, we forget about forgiveness. And when we mourn our sins and the sins of others, the promise in this beatitude is that we will be comforted. And so the comfort comes from the forgiveness. And it comes from the reality that our sins have been paid for in full. We have nothing else to do. 
From there, we went into blessed are the meek, and some um, translations say blessed are the humble. Uh, Kevin and I managed to raise three very um, strong-willed sons. And I have come to believe that it takes much more strength and courage and integrity to be meek and humble than it does to be proud and muscle and bully our way to the top. Humility is the counter-cultural attitude that God wants for his family. And humility naturally leads us into hunger and thirsting for righteousness. And I love, I love how Rebecca Harrison clarified for us that righteousness has nothing, righteousness in God's eyes has nothing to do with being right and it has nothing to do with doing all the right things. Instead, it has everything to do with being in a right relationship with God. So this is one of the verses that for years I have prayed for my sons. As they are finishing their school, I have two who are married and they're planning their lives and looking to the future. I pray in that planning and in that choosing of a mate, in that, in, in that laying out their own paths, that in that process they will hunger and thirst for God's righteousness above all else. Now, if you know anything about our family, we are a family that tends to be very food-oriented. We love to cook, we love to eat, and my husband especially loves to make people happy with food. So we get hunger and thirst, not because we are hungry or thirsty, but because we know what it is to be satisfied with hunger and thirst. And that's what this beatitude tells us. It says that blessed we are blessed when we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness because we will be filled. We will be satisfied. And that satisfaction that comes from that fulfillment is an extension of God's mercy. And so blessed are the merciful. I think it's safe to say that we were all moved by Steve Womberg's explanation of mercy. And what I got out of that talk is that we should each be moved by mercy to mercy. It should not stop with us. When we receive the mercy of God, that mercy should be a natural outflowing to God's people. It happens more easily when we come to the realization that I'm the cause of Jesus' journey to the cross. It was because of me. Our journey should be from mercy receivers to mercy givers. And then there were several things that stood out to me last week when Kevin spoke as we looked at the purity of our hearts. Purity has nothing to do with the actions on the outside, but everything to do with the condition of the heart on the inside. Whew. We are our, our works-oriented people. We want to know what we can do to check all the boxes and get all the best that we deserve. God is not interested in people with better behavior. He's interested in people who are, have a wholehearted commitment to him. Purity is that single-minded focus that promises the ability to see God in every situation that we face. In the good, we're going to praise him in the good, and we're going to seek him in the bad. 
purity of heart gives us that ability to see God. Now, let's look at our passage today. We're going to start just a little bit back in Matthew 4, 23, and then we'll get to and um, spend some time on Matthew 5, 9. So, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread uh, as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. And then where we are for today, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. So the bulk of what I want to talk about today is peace and what it means to be a peacemaker. There are three specific ways that we see peace used in the scripture, kind of a a stair-step way. The first is peace with God. The next is the peace of God. And then the last is peace with others. So like the Beatitudes, these aspects of peace tend to um, build upon one another. Apart from peace with God, we cannot fully experience the peace of God. And also, when we are at peace with God, we have that inner desire to work for peace with others. So, that being said, I want to first look at what it means to be at peace with God. I chose, Rome, I chose Romans 5.1 to get us started there. It says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done. Now, in the Old Testament, the word used for peace carried a very large meaning. It was completeness. It it signified spiritual well-being. And it meant it, um, it alluded to a relationship that was harmonious without discord, without tension or conflict, animosity or enmity. Peace with God means that we are no longer enemies. Original sin, the original sin of Adam, causes humans to be born enemies of God. Not the reverse. We are God's enemy. He is not ours. This means that the hostility, that source of enmity, 
has to be removed from us if the relationship is to be changed. It was God who took the initiative to remedy the hostility in that relationship. And he did that by offering his son as the perfect sacrifice. That is why we can only have peace with God through a relationship with his son. Our relationship with God transitions from enemies to friends when we put our faith in his son. So this means that we're no longer at war with God. God is for us. He is on our side. We are on the same team. He is not against us. When we have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. This is a present reality. It is for today. It is not a distant, eternal promise. It means today. You are at peace with God. This is the good news. I know we talk about that a lot in church. We talk about the gospel and the good news. Well, this is it in a nutshell. While we were God's enemies, he not only pursued us, but he provided the only means of achieving a right relationship with him. We are either friends of God or we remain God's enemy. There's no middle ground. There's no way of remaining neutral. There's no straddling the fence. There is no Switzerland when it comes to a relationship with God. So I want you to play a little game with me, a little word association game. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to think of a person in your, in your head, picture a person in your head. I don't want you to write down any names, because then there's no evidence of who you thought of. <laughs> Just think of that person. If I were to say the word friend, who's the first person that comes to mind? Just picture that person. Smile a little bit. Picture that person. That makes you happy. What if I said enemy? Who's that person? Which person came to mind? Don't, don't say anything out loud. What if I said frenemy? Who comes to mind when I say frenemy? I wonder who that is. Was it a coworker? that you are competing for the same position with? Maybe it's a coworker who already got the position and now you have to pretend like it's okay. Was it um, a friend who always seems to be bringing you down but never building you up? Was it someone in the community that to their face they are kind and friendly to you but behind your back you know, they're saying horrible things, talking bad about you. Frenemy describes a relationship that appears friendly, but in reality it is not. God has no frenemies. We are either friends of God through a personal relationship with his son, or we remain his enemy. So do you ever feel like God is against you? I would be lying if I said, I do not. What I have discovered is it tends to be the times when I am just not getting my way that I feel like God is against me. God is not against us. He is for us. 
peace with God is eternal. There will be times that we struggle in this relationship. We struggle in every relationship that we have. Times when we don't agree with the way God seems to be handling things for us. Times when he directs our path in a way that we don't agree with. When he does things that he didn't ask our permission to do. During those times, we remain at peace with God. Peace with God is eternal. Which leads us right into the peace of God. Because while the peace with God is eternal, peace of God seems to be much more circumstantial. So let's look at the verse there. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace. I like the NIV that says, then you will know the peace of God, which exceeds anything we can understand. This peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So this is a fairly familiar passage, I would guess. Um, It's a good passage about prayer. And how prayer often can alleviate our tendency to worry and our tendency to be anxious. But it also gives us the perfect illustration for the peace of God. The peace with God is eternal, but the peace of God is for every circumstance and every situation that you and I face. The peace of God is not a psychological state of mind or a mind over matter self-discipline. It is an inner tranquility based on peace with God. Because we are at peace with God, we know that he has all earthly situations under his tender loving care. We know that everything that comes into our lives has first been sifted through his hands. We know that the circumstances and the situations of our lives are covered in his fingerprints, even when we can't see them. This confidence that we have is not in our ability to overcome. We are human. We are bent on failure. This confidence in God comes from God's history of faithfulness to his word, his faithfulness to his character, his faithfulness to his people. The peace of God is the antithesis of anxiety. That means it's the opposite of anxiety. We have anxiety, we have the peace of God. So does this mean that we have a choice in how we respond to difficult or unpleasant situations? Yes. We can choose to practice counterproductive worry That's how I defined anxiety, counterproductive worry. We can choose that, or we can choose to commit our cares to God in prayer and worry about them no more. Is there anyone here today who has ever solved a problem by worrying it to death? Anyone who's been anxious about an outcome and affected that outcome with your anxiousness? So why do we continue to choose worry when the peace of God is so readily available to us? 
Well, the rubber, when we talk about peace and peacemaking, I think the rubber really hits the road when we need to face our need to be at and to pursue peace with others. That's where it gets really difficult and sticky. Um, Matthew 5, 9 is paraphrased by Eugene Peterson in his um, book, The Message, like this. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. Church, I am convinced that the tension, the interpersonal tension among us with one another comes from pride, competition, and jealousy. Those three things, pride, competition, and jealousy. There seems to be very little difference in the church versus the outside world. So what does it look like in practical ways to pursue peace with others and to be peacemakers? I am an uber practical person. I just want to know what to do to resolve difficulty. I want to know how how problems are resolved. So I have just three things I want to share with you today about um, what it means to pursue peace and to be a peacemaker. The first thing that we can do to work towards making and maintaining peace with others is to stop judging one another on the freedoms that we choose to or not to practice. I have a little story about Ruth Graham that I love. She, Ruth Graham was the wife of Billy Graham. Mrs. Graham was scheduled to attend a luncheon in Germany with several other wives of pastors, of German pastors. This was an international event. Um, she dressed and prepared herself like any other American woman would in the 1970s. She probably didn't even give a whole lot of thought to it. The German Christians, however, had much more conservative ideas about how women should look and dress in the 1970s. They did not believe that married women should wear makeup or clothing that made them look too much like the world. So when Mrs. Graham appeared at the conference dressed and prepared as she was, there was quite a stir among these very, very conservative German wives. The pastor's wife sitting at her table became visibly upset. She thought it was shameful that a wife of an evangelist should look so worldly. Why, she even had on mascara. The pastor's wife became so angry and upset that she started crying right into her beer. At the same time, Ruth Graham couldn't understand why the woman was crying. Although it bothered her that a self-respecting pastor's wife was drinking beer at a meeting to prepare for an evangelistic crusade where Christians come together as a unified body of Christ. Can we just stop judging one another? Galatians 5.1 tells us that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Do we continue to allow those disputable, non-essential matters to disrupt our peace with one another? Secondly, to be a peacemaker, 
We can pray for those who persecute us. We can, you know that individual who came to your mind when I said enemy? Can you pray for them? And don't pray that God will change them. Pray that God will bless them. It's very hard to remain angry or distant from someone you are actively bringing before the throne of God. Praying for our enemies does so much more for us than it does for them. Placing ourselves under God's authority, recognizing his sovereignty in those situations has a profound way of softening our hearts towards those who've offended us, those who have gossiped relentlessly about us, those who have hurt us, treated us unfairly, judged our family, you have your own list. Prayer aligns our hearts with the heart of our Father and allows us to extend peace to those who've wronged us. So the third thing, peacemakers promote and pursue reconciliation. This means that we humble ourselves in the name of peace. Christ gave us the perfect example in that he humbled himself to death on a cross so that we could be reconciled to him. And he's our example. And he is, his behavior is our charge for our lives. Since the, the very beginning of the church, Paul's letters to the early church are filled with admonition to Please get along. Be reconciled to one another. A couple of examples I have. Um, one from Romans 12. He says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then in Hebrews, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Everyone means everyone. There's very little room to wiggle out of everyone or exclude anyone. The problem with reconciliation is that it is costly. The greatest cost to us personally is our pride. We don't like to admit when we're wrong. We don't like to forgive when the hurt is still really fresh. We don't like to let go of offenses when we continue to face consequences for someone else's behavior. We like to cling to our right to be offended and put the burden of reconciliation on the one that we perceive did the wrong. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Make every effort. So what does this peace and the ability to be a peacemaker result in? That's kind of how the Beatitudes were laid out. There was that admonition, and then there seemed to be kind of a, a blessing or, or a um, promise at the end. This Beatitude tells us that we will be called children of God. When Matthew set the stage in chapter 4, he told us that large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan had followed Jesus to the mountainside. So what we need to remember, even in scripture, whenever there's a large crowd mentioned, it's highly likely that 
the crowd was not all in favor of Christ and his message. Not all in the, loud, in the large crowd were followers of Christ. Some of those gathered on the mountainside were just curious onlookers. They were just curious bystanders, people trying to see what all the fuss was about, wanting to know what was going on with that crowd. Now, church, I want you to know that we remain in that same situation today. We are weekly and daily faced with large crowds who are looking on curiously, wanting to know what the fuss about Jesus is really about. And they are looking to his followers to show them. This means that we bear the burden to rightly represent Christ so the world will see and become transformed from a curious bystander to a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ so that they will no longer be God's enemy, but they will be God's friend. They will know we are God's child when we bear that family resemblance. So the big so what for today When peace receivers become peacemakers, God is reflected in them. And if you have peace with God, you have received God's peace. And it is your privilege to extend that peace to others. We we may not be able to choose whether or not we look like our moms or our dads. I do look a lot more like my mom now than my dad, just in case you were worried about that. (laughs) We might not get to choose that. But we can choose to put into practice until they become personal attributes, these nine attitudes, these beatitudes. Peace and being a peacemaker must begin with you and God. Apart from peace with God, we remain God's enemies. Romans 5.10 says it very clearly. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. While we turned our back on God, while we dug in our heels, while we remained stiff-necked and rebellious, God pursued us with Jesus. God has made a way for us to become friends and experience an eternal relationship with our creator. It's a friendship that offers peace in the midst of every one of life's storms. Peace that circumvents our understanding and our reason. And it is because of this that you and I are called to pursue peace with others. Now, we have to be realistic. I can't help but imagine that some of you here today don't have earthly parents that you want to be like. They didn't set you a good example. They didn't put you on the right path. Some of you had to be adults in that relationship long before you were an adult. But as a child of God, you are a new creation. You have been adopted into a new family. 
The old is gone and the new has come. If you are here today and you feel that you have no peace whatsoever and you are hungering and thirsting for that peace, this is a conversation that your church family wants to have with you. Every Sunday morning there is staff and there are volunteers at our Welcome Center who want to have this conversation with you. We don't want you to leave here today without being at peace with God. And we don't want you to leave here today without knowing the peace of God personally. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you give abundantly and immeasurably more than what we could ever want or ask. And you know our every needs before we can even express them verbally, before we even know them, you know them. Lord, you are a good, good father. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are faithful without, without error to your word, to your character, and to your people. And for that, we give you the glory, the honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.